The following is part of our ongoing mini-series investigation into the history of alien resurrection. Re-engaging resurrection. Enjoy. So, we're a fast learner. I think you will find that uh, things have changed a great deal since your time. I doubt that. I'm flying blind here, you know. It's the United Systems military, not some crazy corporation. Oh. Well, it won't make any difference. You're still gonna die. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and I am joined by hosts... Patrick Green. Uh, Mike Andrews. And Clara Feifei, also known as Mother 9000. So tonight we are discussing um, Alien Resurrection again. This is part four in our ongoing series, Reengaging Resurrection. And we're going to cover the production side of of the film and everything that was involved, or as much as we can get to at least. So Patrick, I'm going to hand it off to you. Yeah, we made it this far. We've gone through the pre-production, we've gone through the script, we've gone through our personal um, relationships with the film, and here we are arriving at the actual shooting of the thing and all the chaos that that entails. And so we're going to get through as much as we can on this particular episode, knowing that we might have another one um, sort of supplementing this at some point. Uh, and we already also know that there's going to be a mini-sode that Clara's going to run on uh, the costuming, which is super exciting, because we're not going to have time to get to that tonight. But we are going to hopefully get to a number of salient things that have entered into cinema lore because they were either super interesting or super crappy or somewhere in the middle. And uh, I, I figured we'd start tonight by talking about the ensemble, because it's something we talk about with this film a lot, is how the the actors are super interesting and not people you might necessarily expect to be playing these particular parts in conjunction with one another. And I think it re- it reflects a lot of the multicultural aspect of the filmmaking process that, was, that went into this and some of the uh, interesting friction going on between the French crew and the Hollywood crew. And uh, I want to go ahead and kick it off, if possible, to Mike to go ahead and... Um, and what are your thoughts on the ensemble and, you know, some of the background going on? Well, yeah, um, we've, we've already gone over that uh, um, a couple of people came back from some of Jean-Pierre's other films. So we have, um, uh, you know, Ron Perlman and, oh, his name escapes me, uh, the wheelchair guy, Dominique. Pignon, right? That, yeah, Pignon, yeah. And um, I think uh, having them was a good idea because they were knew kind of how to work with Jean-Pierre. But I think they also oddly fit really well into the universe made in this movie, whereas I don't I don't know. I don't know if they would have fit in, in any of the other films, but how this film is directed and, and the art style, I think it really works well. Um, having, well and also, uh, it's, it's worth pointing out that both of the guys you mentioned were the two alums from his uh, previous movies, right? Because Perlman was in City of Lost Children and Pinon was mm-hmm. uh, in Delicatessen, too. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, honestly, I think this may be one of my favorite group of uh of actors and actresses um for any alien film because i love 
J.E. Freeman. Uh, he's in so much good stuff. If you guys have seen um, Miller's Crossing, and um, I think he's in a few other Coen Brothers films too. He's just a fantastic actor. Um, and uh, I, I, I would love to turn it over to more people because I could just go on about J.E. Freeman alone. Um, he's so excellent. Um, well, they're obviously actors that he quite, felt quite comfortable with, and, and they ended up going on to this like pretty uh, illustrious careers, at least in, in a Hollywood sense, because they've been in just about every single um, blockbuster movie that's been out since Resurrection. So it's, it hasn't really killed their careers, even though it killed the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's really interesting in that sort of sense. Something well, well, that's died. What people say, mm. <laughs> and then got reheated, lukewarm. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think that they have a really good sort of um, chemistry. Like you, they've got all of these like kind of oddball sort of characters, but they still work quite well together. And this opposition between uh, Ripley eight. And Jonna is is just great. I, I I kind of like really enjoy that sort of like back and forth throughout the whole film. Him kind of like doing his whole male posturing and, and, and being just a general tool and, and her kind of like sticking it to him. It felt it felt really great watching that like every single time. So yeah, I've I've got no pl- complaints with the casting. I think even Brad Dorf is um, a blessing. Uh, he's just he's so over the top in an over the top movie. Uh, I, think, I think he's right at home in something like this, being all oh, weird I, I and think, I think sexual. I think he's born for that part. I, I I fucking love Brad Dorf just in in general, and I feel like if if anybody could have pulled off Ketterman, I feel like he's the one that that could have done it. I think he's really good in this movie, actually. Yeah, he is, and and even uh, supplementary material I think from the Wayland Utani report, if I remember correctly, has like him. Writing a bunch of poetry about the alien, and it gets more and more maddening and, and like way too creepy and too close. And I like how you can kind of see that in the movie. He starts when no one's around, kissing the, the glass and, and all that. He's just <laughs> such a weirdo. It's such a weirdo. But but being being such a weirdo, he fits the movie, I think, really well. Hello. 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 Well, like you guys uh, have mentioned, I think that the the actors themselves are really great people. Uh, Michael Wincott, amazing. You know, he was in. The, he kind of made his his a name for himself in The Crow. Um, he's been in several other movies. He was just recently in Ghost in the Shell, um, which he did a great job in. Um, I've never seen Kim Flowers in anything before or since Alien Resurrection. She's probably the weakest of 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 the ensemble. But the actors themselves, I really love, and I also know that. Um, Sigourney Weaver is responsible for having Dominique Pignon cast as Vries. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Fox was not going to do it. They didn't want him. And Sigourney Weaver had enough clout where she said she wanted it. And she she actually called him um, on the phone and asked him. And uh, and that was that. Um, so she really kind of had her way with, with what she wanted. And, uh, I, and I love Dominique Pignon. Again, Great people. I think uh, Gary Jordan, who was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Christy, oh, that's right? Christy. Christy. Christy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, he, you know, he was on um, CSI, the classic version of CSI for many, many years. Unfortunately, he's had a really rough go of it since. But I, I love him as an actor. 
Um, I would just... So, yeah, on the outset, all of the actors, I think, were really great people. Well, I, I, I think it's... Uh... I think the casting process is really um, interesting here because, um, as as you can read about quite a bit in the making of book that we've brought up a number of times in this thing, the one by Andrew Murdoch and uh, Rachel Aberly, um, they talk about how they 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 cast people um, who had interesting backgrounds and would kind of work fascinatingly together, and and to make it go quickly to find these people, they would um, Janae would had these these uh, character descriptions that were sort of like little sentences about what these characters had to be. And they were very specific. So, for example, um, and this this is in that book, um, Elgin was described as an ex-military type. He must be sympathetic, a scrappy kind of guy. And then you can see before they had cast Michael Wincott. Michael Wincott. In the part, um, there's uh, like production designs that were done ahead of time that ended up looking extraordinarily close to him. Same thing with Christie too. Gary Dorden looks a lot like the initial designs that were done for Christie. I think also people like Leland Orser, who played Purvis, I think he's just <laughs> just really great in that part. Um you know, we actually, I reached out to him um, through his agent to get an interview for the show. And uh, and I guess he's um, no longer acting or he's taking some kind of a hiatus now. I don't know. I don't know he's in um, that show, I think it's Berlin Station. Is that what it's called? Have you heard of that? No. Is he yes, I've heard it? of it. It's a great show. Yeah. Really? He's, yeah, it's really interesting to see him in that role. I think he's like the head of a, a CIA locale or something in Berlin. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because because uh, uh, maybe maybe he just didn't want to talk about resurrection, <laughs> which is certainly yeah, I don't blame him. Um, yeah, and then Raymond Cruz too, who uh, like has had all these wonderful television roles between being you know the drug lord in the first season of Breaking Bad to being you know a monster in uh, one of the the best X Files episodes. He's done just so much cool stuff. Um, there's a lot of really interesting actors in this, I think. And yeah, I agree. J.E. J. Freeman, too, is another just super interesting dude. Emergency override in console 45V, level one. It's Ren. He's almost at the Betty. I, I really, really love Winona Ryder as Cole. You've got this, like, there's this tough girl persona even though she like looks very uh, unassuming uh, and there's this sort of innocence with her. And I think that is kind of betrayed with the androids for the first time in the alien universe. Cause every other model has been shown to be quite old or old, older looking or male. So Winona um, playing the role of Cole was like a complete, he has 180 from what expectations were. And, and I think this, that's what this whole movie was about was, breaking any sort of expectation of what you thought the alien universe was about. So um, having Winona Ryder in the role of Cole, especially at an age where she didn't really like have any sort of um, idea what she was doing uh, as an actress yet, even when she retrospectively looks back at it now, um, playing the role of Cole, she, she just didn't believe that she belonged in the movie she she doesn't know why she even took the part, which is I, I feel kind of sad because I thought that she was a really great character and it was the sort of personality and someone that I could look up to um, when I was watching it as a teenage girl. I thought it was really awesome. So When yeah, did she say that? Thoughts. When did yeah, she say no, she I didn't know why? She, I've never heard that. In fact, I've heard the opposite. When the, the build-up to Resurrection uh, – 
all she talked about was that she loved these movies. She loved science fiction, and they offered oh, her a role. And she, up. yeah, but but she said that's the but, build up though. I I think I watched that one because I've seen seen so many interviews. But I think this was in the making of Alien Resurrection, and this was after um, it was done. I think it was it was done still quite close to have it it having been made. It only been. Uh, a few years and when they did that for the anthology people were still kind of bitter about but what had happened in the movie and, and, and their experience and stuff it was kind of tainted whereas when other people were looking back there was kind of this nostalgia this kind of cloud that people can get lost in where they don't remember all the like the little tiffs that they had on, on stage or the problems that they had with the roles and and stuff like that with the characters so well, so the sort of reflection time in the early 2000s i think in general just yeah in her personal yeah. And professional life so that, that could have been she's just now getting her career back yeah, she kind of stepped away from acting probably for six or seven years but I, I just the the comment that you made about her saying she doesn't know why she took the role when she was giving when she was doing interviews for the film she knew why she took that role because she loved the alien series she loved she grew up watching them she loved ripley and then they introduced the script and she was like hell yeah i'll do this that's why she took the role so it seems but i know she winona ryder does not seem emotionally like the same person she was in the 90s she's a very different person i don't know if she's struggling with something psychologically i'm not sure um so maybe that kind of informs her comments but uh, she was very clear about why she was taking the role and how excited she was for it although she, funny. she felt that she wasn't prepared but she, like she felt like there was hmm. such like Sigourney Weaver being like a juggernaut <laughs> in the sense that she was just you know the female uh you know kick-ass character and then you know Ripley of all all characters and then her being Cole she kind of just felt like she was following um, Ripley around on set and the same thing following Sigourney Weaver around. She she didn't feel like there was any point to her character because the whole movie was about Ripley. And and that's what that's that's something that she said and that really surprised me. That is I'll, so surprising. I'll try to cause, find it. Cool, because the movie's not about Ripley at all, which is so fascinating too. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. I, I really would love to research that more. I think it's an interesting um, window into what was going on at the studio at the time about how she actually came on board because that, you know, that happened after they had already locked down Sigourney Weaver, who initially wasn't interested in it until she became, you know, executive producer and had the script changed. Uh, and then they, and then Sarah Legwee, who has come up now about a thousand times on this freaking miniseries is the guy who personally sought Winona out because they had, because she was a fan of science fiction and was looking for a vehicle, and so he was like kind of threw it out. And she, as Jamie said, was a big alien fan, and she signed on. But again, it's it's sort of like why? Well, I guess they needed a name to to sell it, is what they thought, um, and that's kind of where they were going from. But I, it's just I just find it so fascinating. I think her portrayal is brilliant, personally. I think well, I don't think job. they they needed a name to sell it. Sigourney Weaver was enough to sell it. They, from what I've read and what I know about Resurrection, which is so interesting, because of all the alien films. That's this is the one I love the least, but I know the most about, just because I was so crazy about it <laughs> right. when I was like twenty one. But they cast, in large part, they cast uh, Winona Ryder because of her age, because she was going to bring in that that um, uh, that Generation X, 
at the time. And we were all at the time in our 20s, in our early 20s. And she was going to she was doing reality bites. She did Little Women. I mean, she was doing a spate of films. She was very, very successful. She had her own clout. She she um, executive produced Little Women. So Winona Ryder wasn't just this actress. She was a, a mogul at the time, much like Sigourney Weaver was. So they really it was a strategic thing as well. It wasn't just clout. I saw both. I read both in the archive and the making of book that uh, she. It was considered that she's like the biggest name next to Sigourney Weaver in any of the Alien films that had ever been cast. And it, I don't know. It, it kind of represents like Alien Resurrection is such a weird movie because it's directed and features people you wouldn't expect, and the outcome is so weird. And yet they're trying to make it more mass appealing in that way, you know, like they're trying to put in somebody like Winona Ryder next to Sigourney Weaver to be like, oh, well, we also got this, this big name and, and all, it's a weird experiment, but it's also trying to be controlled, you know? Well, it's like, here's the biggest budget we've ever had for an alien movie. Here's fucking four giant studios to work in, actual set, you know, areas to work in in the back lot of Fox here's all this Hollywood shit, here's these two huge stars, and then let's get this French art house director who can't speak English yet to come and direct it and, and like, do all these kind of bizarre story changes up front. Father's dead, asshole. Jamie, to what you were saying about her, her sort of youth and how that was part of her selling point, um, I think also just literally, um, Jeanne has said that her childlike qualities were part of what he liked about working with her, that she was very oh, yeah. instinctual. Yeah. And that she was she very had this kind pixie... Of, this pixie quality that he likes, which you can kind of see in Audrey Tattoo. Or an anomaly, right, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. I think, I mean, considering those movies were made within a matter of months of each other, you could very clearly see his, you know, the type of, of person that he liked to photograph, you know, in that in that um, relationship between the two. Anyway, so so I, I think that the ensemble is, is super fascinating, and at some point it would be really great to get interviews with some of these people because I think that there are so many things to talk about. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a really interesting mix of strange types and backgrounds that I think come together to make a really interesting sort of a stew. I, I, I used to think she was kind of whiny, um, and, and obnoxious when I, when I was first watching the movie, but I kind of like how she, as, and as an android on top of it is kind of, um, uh, she's not as realistic, uh, like in the scene where she's going to assassinate Ripley and, she Ripley's like, why would I let you kill me? And she's she thinks it would be putting her out of her misery, um, which I know Clara. We were briefly discussing like Ripley eight doesn't wasn't asked to be made, and so she's one of the more innocent characters, I guess you could say. And then somebody like Call, who's this android, it's been made by androids, is kind of like naive about the whole situation. Kind of starts to grow during the whole movie. I think Winona Ryder does a really good job of um, portraying that growth. So I want to move on a little bit to production design because if there's something that I think we can all agree on, it's that there is quite a lot visually going on, for better or for worse, in Resurrection on a lot of different levels. Um, 
I think something that we kind of didn't have time to really delve into on our previous script episode is the importance of storyboarding to Genet and how he's a very visual director. And as part of that, he he basically commissioned these comic book panel storyboards. Um, Mike, do you want to talk about that a little bit, actually, just so we can touch on it? Well, who is the guy that did uh, Mobius? Is that the right? Mobius, yeah. Yeah, they, they had that guy working on it. Um, and the way, the way Jean-Pierre wanted it... Uh, um, like we were saying, is is both uh, like a comic book, and I think he wanted to insert little bits of like, like like he already found that Joss Whedon had put in stuff that he liked in the script for each scene, but he wanted to make sure he had like one thing of interest in in each particular scene, so he would put that or he would want that in the storyboards. Um, mm. But um, I don't know. Beyond that, what do you guys do? You guys have anything else on the comic book aspect? I know I brought that up, but I actually. Didn't have as much as I thought I did. Well, and there's not that much on it. Just just to say that this is actually available on avpgalaxy.net slash downloads if anybody wants to, to, to look at them. They're super cool, and they're way more detailed than most storyboards are. I mean, and, and this is not to take anything away from storyboard artists because they do amazing work, but usually they're setting up kind of a general indication for the way a scene is going to be shot and to show the momentum and the camera movement and things like that. But these are really in-depth, and if, if they had been inked over and colored, could very clearly be sold as a comic book, so it's it's interesting. And that came from Janae, who was not an illustrator himself, but had a lot of respect for um, artists, and it was a very visual filmmaker, and he wanted to get things really clearly storyboarded in a way that would convey the momentum of the storytelling that he was trying to to do uh, and and he shared them widely with the crew and it became part of kind of the bible that was building this film up sorry it was oh, go, also go a way that he could um communicate because obviously he couldn't speak english right so laying out all of these scenes bit by bit um and actually if you have a look at these storyboards and then have a look at the, the scenes that marry up with it it's nearly exactly the same. You could lay over the screen over the storyboard and it would just about mirror what you see there. So it's pretty amazing that he can actually have that sort of like, this is what it'll look like. And then that's exactly how it turns out. Kind of like the way that Ridley Scott does his Ridley Grams. It's really, it's kind of strange that like two directors who, who can be quite visual can have such stark difference in their styles as well. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Just about to bring that up, and, and you snatched it. Sorry. <laughs> no, Snatcher. <laughs> well, it's also unprecedented what that, essentially, the script visual storyboard Bible, nothing really like that had been done. Usually there's a storyboard artist who comes along, and all of those storyboards that you, all of us, have probably seen in drawing rooms, whether it's for Covenant or Prometheus or other films, all the storyboards are, are, are there, and they're really previs. Um, that's what what's, what storyboards are. They're pre, they're early previs. Um, so it's unusual for the storyboards to be on set that way. Um, so then they compiled that that entire that Bible. And I remember uh, at the time the film was in production. Um, and I've mentioned this before. One of the the supervisors, the um, the special effects supervisor's names. Her name was Carrie Shea. She was talking to me about the movie and about what was going on and the fans and all that stuff. And she was like, well, I can probably try and send you one if you want. Um, but of course it never happened, but, um, it was one of the first times that storyboards were used on set in conjunction with the script. Um, and that there was such a marriage of both of them. So it was, it was yeah. very fascinating. And they were published as you can see in the download, like they're basically a book, like there's a whole, there's a title page to them. It's like it's like 160 pages. You can flip through if you print it out. 
Um, it's like it's basically just a long comic book, um, which yeah, Jamie's totally right. It's, is is something that you really didn't see very much of. Um, anyway, so there's there's a lot of my point being there's a lot of drawing going on. In addition to this, there were costume designs and other things happening in the background of pre-production, which we'll talk talk about on a mini sode at some point. But in the midst of this, they had to start actually doing the production design, and this is where Nigel Phelps comes in, who I would also love to get on the show at some point. Um, he, uh, at that point, was relatively new. He's done a ton of work since then, but um, he had been an art director on Kubrick movies, like Full Metal Jacket. Um, he'd worked on Batman, and uh, and then he was transitioning into production design, and this was one of his first movies where he was helming the department. And... Uh, I think he's a, a really talented artist, and um, he says uh, in the Making of Resurrection book that he thinks that Genet hired him specifically because there were a lot of similarities in his past material um, between um, things that Phelps had done and things that um, Genet had done in The City of Lost Children and Delicatessen, so that they were kind of kindred spirits in a way. And really, they I would say that the aesthetics, the visual aesthetics from whether it's the design or and obviously Darius, Darius Kanji's contribution, it really is one of the only films in the larger, I don't say trilogy, but saga that looks like the original. Alien Resurrection feels like Alien. Um, it's dirty, it's messy, um, it's darker, and uh, a lot of that is attributed to Nigel Phelps's design uh, decisions. They did a really, really great job. Totally. Uh, I think part of what lends their, the believability and the depth of realism to these ships, um, into these into these sets, there were 30-something sets built for this thing, um, is how rigorously they approached the technological possibilities of these environments. And so um, I wanted to take kind of a second and just talk about the two big ships in the movie. So we'll start with the Eureka. What are you guys' thoughts on it? Well, um, and to go off of what Jamie was saying, they wanted to come back to that claustrophobic, almost like a cathedral-like setting uh, for the ships, where they, they they have it as a character in its own right. Um, and his initial design, I don't know if you guys have seen the pictures, but they wanted to make it like a crucifix. Um, and at the end of the movie, it'd be like falling to earth. And it's this big crucifix, and it had all this, you know, not so subliminal <laughs> messaging to it. Uh, I, I got to show you the picture sometime. It's just insane. But um, the fact that they changed it to look—I I don't know—it reminds me very much of Alien, and I, that's what they were going for from the beginning. And like we've talked about, Jean-Pierre really was more interested in harkening back to the first one than anything. Um, I think it shows in the design of the Eureka, at least in the interior. Um, they also, I think, uh, while they were working on the film at, at um, uh, outside of the studio, they did, they had some guy working on their house that they were using, and they were using the jackhammers as a um, uh, a template or like an idea to use for the design of the Eureka. Now, there's a very specific design consideration about the Auriga that's going to hint at something that we're going to get to after we finish this conversation that we're in right now, which is that this was shot on Super 35mm format, which is something I want Jamie, the film expert, to sort of give us some clues about. But the fact that it was shot on Super 35, which is widescreen, 
meant that they the, initially the Arigo, which had been vertical in the production designs originally, um, had to be shifted to being horizontal. So that was a pretty big change. And, and that's why, in my mind, when I picture the Arriga, I kind of picture the Sulaco, even though I know they don't actually look alike. But to me, they have a similar, very kind of longitudinal layout. Um, I think it looks pretty cool. It's also huge. It's 12,000 feet long or something like that, um, which I find fucking crazy. Yeah, really, Super 35... Um... It's essentially this, it's kind of hard to explain. You get more of an image range. You get more of a, a, a wider image on Super 35 than you do on 35 millimeter, even though it's the same image information. So it's a larger image. In terms of that versus like an anamorphic widescreen, uh, like how do they differ from one another? Well, anamorphic widescreen is just the lens they're choosing. So you can do that on any kind of film. You can do that with 70 millimeter. You can do that with mm-hmm. Super 8. You can do that with anything. Super 35 is uh, almost an extension. Uh, it's again, it's it's a bigger version of 35 millimeter. Okay, cool. But like but it doesn't 8. it doesn't capture more data though, right? Like like there's still the same amount of surface area. It's a larger. It's yeah, so larger, so it's, it's essentially a bigger box. So when okay. you are putting the film through the, you know, the like the film through the shutter, and you're feeding it through, and they're gonna, you know, you're getting it ready to, you know, for filming. Um, that box is bigger. That's it, it. Just it. like Super Eight. Super Eight is bigger than eight millimeter. Right. Even and, though and, it, and seventy millimeter is basically like two Super Thirty Fives stacked yep. on top of each other, and IMAX is like. 10 70 millimeter. Well, I, yeah, two 70 millimeters, two super, two super 35s next to each other, like horizontal. Other. Okay. Yeah. Um, cause it's Very fucking cool. huge. I'm glad yeah, I asked cool. you about that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I didn't know a lot about it. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, so, so this is begging to be a transition into our next cinematography conversation, but we're not done yet. Cause I'm going to get Clara's thoughts on the Eureka and then I want to talk about the Betty. All right. Um, well, as for the, I guess the vertical style design, I had no idea it was going to be in the shape of a cross. I knew about the, it being completely vertical, kind of like a spear. Um, but yeah, not, not, not the cross thing, but that's interesting. Um, I've been looking at a lot of stuff from uh, this anime called uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and there's a lot of uh, symbolism in, in regards to crosses in that as well and the end of the world. Um, but I like the design of the interiors. I, I think it was very clever in how they managed to extend the, the sets by using mirrors, kind of like what they did in um, Aliens, and also just filming this ongoing walk by filming the character walk ac- walking across the stage and then cutting it and then having them walk across again and then cutting it there. So they were able to manipulate and, and change the, the, the sort um, the sort of filming style within the budget that they had. Um, and, and all of these sets were, were practical, uh, as uh, Patrick has brought up before. The problem is the sound wasn't very good when they were recording it, so it all had to be done in <laughs> studio later, uh, which is ADR. which is a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's a pity because uh, all, for all the, the sake of it being practical, it's it's hasn't helped it one bit um <laughs> in, in a movie that i really really like to to watch and enjoy um that that's something that i've noticed uh i also like the designs whether intentional or not um it came to uh ripley's prison 
So I've mentioned this on Building Better Worlds, but I'll mention it again for the sake of this podcast and those who aren't in the discussion group. Um, the design of Ripley's cell is kind of like the uh, the, the pan- Pantheon? Pantheon? Parthenon? Yeah, the Pantheon. Pantheon, yeah. Pantheon. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. In, in, in Greece? The, yeah. Uh, so uh, is it the Pantheon in Rome with the, the whole... Parthenon. In, oh, the, in the, the Pantheon's in Rome and the Parthenon's in Athens, yeah. Okay, so we're talking about the, the one with the oculus <laughs> in yep, the top. Yep. That's the Pantheon, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so this was a, a, a building that was kind of built in, in celebration of uh, many types of uh, gods or belief, um, and it kind of was made to follow the astrological um, uh, line of the sun, and you might be thinking, what the hell does that mean? Uh, well, if you look at the name of uh, the Ariga and also the design of Ripley's cell, all of this kind of stuff interlinks into Greek mythology. And you might be thinking, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, but the the fact is, with the choice of the name um, Ariga, apparently the god that was brought back to life from the, from the dead um, has something to do with the um, Auriga name itself and, you know, Ripley 8 being um, brought back from the dead as well. Um, and the design of um, Ripley's cell also being like the um, Pantheon is because uh, in, in, in her case, her gods are the humans, the scientists, her, they're, they're her creators. So for her, like, to be able to... Um, see and recognize her God and, and, and know that she's kind of been abandoned. I think that plays a lot into like the symbolism of um, the, the movie itself. And I don't even know whether it was intentional or not, but uh, all of that sort of stuff kind of, uh, it, it, a lot of um, the themes of this movie kind of match up with like what's been happening in Alien Covenant. So you've got the same sort of like um, engineer cathedral looking exactly the same as the um pantheon as well and then we've got you know gods who have been recognized and kind of kind of abandoned their creation and then you have this sort of um thing with ripley 8 being um a monstrosity of creation so you, you're going back to things as early as you know uh, mary shelley's frankenstein and and the monster kind of being i guess uh pitied for its um sort of existence and then you've got you know Ripley 8 trying to like, I guess, figure out why she's alive, why she should even care. You know, she's been dragged into this never-ending war with the Xenomorph and now has become something of a monster with it. And and now she's kind of been resurrected into this sort of being where she has to kind of reconcile with herself. You know, is she going to try to destroy this monster again or kind of like let it take control and, and there's that, like, sort of fight between, you know, creation and creator again, um, which is, like, an ongoing theme, I feel like, that's going through the Alien movies. So I, I think the design of the cell um, in that sort of sense is, is really beautiful and having that put into the ship. I also like the design of the the chapel as well. So in the movie, you can't really tell. The design of the chapel is supposed to be, um, it, it doesn't, hold any particular denomination so the the bible can be you know um, 
the Quran. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be a, of a Catholic religion. And I think the the pa- the, the Parthenon or Pantheon as well. The it's um, a Pantheon. Because <laughs> it's it's Pantheos, like all, all gods. Oh yes. So yeah. So it's the Church for all gods. So in in the book is actually more clear that the chapel. Uh, you can kind of like. You don't have to have the cross there. You can kind of like put the Star of David there or, or whatever the denomination it is that represents you. It's whatever you choose to believe. That's what the chapel is there for. It's to communicate with God. And it's interesting in this sort of um, symbolism with the chapel, when you um, have Cole plug in to the system, uh, she is communicating to the only real one true God to her, and that's the AI, that's the computer system. And and her becoming also one with the ship is pretty full on as well because, you know, when we uh, assumedly say our prayers, talk to God, we, we become one with God as well. And we kind of like feel like we're kind of like sent on some sort of, uh, uh, I guess, um, re- religious crusade. <laughs> No, not in a bad way, but in a way that um, we're trying to go and go out and do the right thing in the world. And, you know, Cole has this like literal sort of plugging into God and then sending out the instructions for the xenomorphs and saying, you know, go forth, destroy Elgin, <laughs> that sort of thing. I think that's um, really kind of interesting, cool, and, and sort of like comically literal um for Cole to be like sending out those sorts of orders. And so you've got even, this like she's even bleeding from her side at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So it's just like the lance, uh, the the lance that um, Pierce Christ when she uh, when he sacrificed right. himself. She she literally came back from the dead. You know, everyone thought that she died. She fell down and she came back up. So there's a lot of like of this like rebirth, creation, creator symbolism. Like it's all about uh, you know understanding what it is to be created, to exist, to live, and also to be an abomination and coming to terms with that as well. Well, which Sorry, is where like but before, response. no, that was amazing. But, <laughs> awesome. but just before we started recording, you know, we were kind of half joke. Well, I was half joking about it, but we were talking about how there's this like sort of anti-natalist bent going on philosophically in the movie and how I think it's kind of a sort of an accident because I don't think that they were trying to express this idea that like birth is a bad thing or that like coming, coming, creating organic life is, is a mistake. Um, but they kind of end up, it, it, that's sort of what comes out of the movie to me is it's like, you, you know, you, you, you screw around with nature and you bring life into the world and it's just plunged into darkness and torture and it's mutated and disgusting. And if, even if it survives, it's like doomed to live a life, you know, of, of aloneness. There's a, there's a deep sense of, um, annihilative negation at the center of resurrection. But the reason why to me, I mean, I love that you got all that out of it, Clara. And I think it's such a testament to what a deep thinker you are. But to me, I think I I don't necessarily engage with those concepts in the context of watching this movie because they're, to me, they're not presented in a way that feels intentional. Like they feel like kind of like they're accidental. Whereas when I watch something like Covenant, I think it's so intentional that it feels very clearly like a poetic allegory for these ideas of creation or natalism or these things. But um, in Resurrection, because because I, th- I feel like the script started off as one thing and then it got so continually screwed up and turned into other things based on demands of the studio and all these other you know ideas. And then the cloning kind of was tacked on as like an excuse to get Sigourney Weaver back on the project. 
or well, it was it was an excuse to get Newt back and then Sigourney Weaver back, and then before you know it, the movie was really about cloning. But you only really get the cloning scene. That's like the only part where there's really any kind of, you know, uh, urgency to that theme. Um, but I but I, I love the fact that you took all that out of the out of the the chapel scene, which I, I think has always been pretty effective too. But I never really thought of why. I think it's a really beautiful point. Um, I, I want to, but just before we move on, um, ha, ha, I don't have any of you been to the Pantheon before. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's no. it's no, an amazing. Definitely get there if you can. I'm glad. I'm glad you have Mike. It's like the the best part of Rome for me was the Pantheon. It's it's absolutely amazing, and that it stood the test of time like this. Oh, uh, you you just got. Because it's almost impossible so cool. to visualize unless you're in the space. What a miracle of engineering it is! Like because you see pictures of it all. For those of you who might not know what it looks like, it's basically. It's got the traditional sort of um, Roman temple layout, which is it has this sort of this this colonnade in the front, and then it's got uh, this huge sort of um, circular dome behind it. And but it's it's colossal, and the dome isn't supported by anything. It's 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 held up by itself. And through yeah, this really it's... clever system of um, switching materials as it gets higher, it gets gradually lighter until it tops off with pumice, and there's holes in it so that it's super light. And then there's the oculus in the middle that Clara brought up, which is actually there. It's there functionally for astrological reasons and whatever, and, and to light the space. But it's also there because it just takes some of the weight off the top of the building. And you think, like, you know, it can't be that impressive. And then you stand in the space, and you, and you see how fucking massive it is. And you think, this has been here for thousands of years. And there are no, there's nothing holding it up other than itself, and it's a really truly amazing thing. And the only reason I'm going doubling down on the on the Pantheon art thing for a second is that one of the salient design themes to me of the Origa is this repeating repeating um, sort of polygon aspect. There's a lot of like hexagons and octagons and things like that that you just sort of see in the walls and you see in the layout, for example, of the cell, as Clara beautifully elucidated a minute ago. Um, you see these sort of repeating geometries a lot. And I and I it might have been an accidental tie-in to the Pantheon, but it's definitely all over the aesthetics of that ship. Yeah, I really the, the, just going back onto the technological marvel that it is. It is 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 the largest uh, unreinforced domed ceiling in in the entire world for the past two thousand or more years. Like that's a really long time, considering they didn't have the sort of like construction uh, genius that that they have now or all the technology to do it. It's amazing, um, and and yeah, it, it may be an accidental reference, it, it or, or definitely unintentional, but it definitely plays into the whole sort of. You've got you know, multiple gods. You've got the, the the church of all gods. Then you've got um, the resurrection, and 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 that that sort of thing was intentional. All of like the Christian imagery and bringing. Ripley back from the dead and maybe uh, I'm not sure about the intentional uh, naming of Ripley 8 being the 8th generation of um, the the clone because they, they were saying something about um, uh, like something relating to David 8 and, and um, being the the sign of the devil is 8 as well um, it's also the on its side looks like the infinity symbol. Um, so there's a lot of like sort of symbolism, intentional or not, is <laughs> kind of like, I guess, now on the release of Covenant and the release of Prometheus kind of retroactively changes to, to me what resurrection was before, which was like right. a lighthearted, comical joke. Um, 
kind of to lighten up after Alien 3, which was like a very saddening sort of film. It was very nihilistic. And then you've got this sort of black comedy and, and these really larger-than-life characters kind of playing up into this whole sort of uh, roles that they've got. Um, now Resurrection, on the opposite end of the spectrum to Prometheus and Covenant, is another story of um, what we have uh, people call the, the Ubermensch or the Superman. So you've got a Ripley 8 character who before was just, you know, a clone, who cares? Now she has become more human than human and therefore is is kind of on par with what David is. You know, she can create, she is free of will from the human race. She can kind of make her own roles and, you know, she, she has that superhuman strength but she could also uh, choose to lead the human race out of the sort of like constant loop of failure that they're stuck in because they are humans because they're they're prone to greed um as um you see with uh um elgin when he like follows the trail of weapons and he just can't resist picking up that last weapon even though it feels like he's walking into a trap or with you know uh christy giving up halfway up on the ladder because his face has gotten burnt off um you know there's there's no quitting for ripley eight because she knows what the cost is to give up because she did that in the last film and it didn't stop. She had to be the one to out, kind of outlive the monster and outlive the cycle, which which I kind of really love. That's what uh, Alien Resurrection does for me now. So you've got this, like, defeat of all of this stuff that David Ate is kind of building up at the end. And, 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 and in, in the end, it's a, a, a human-xeno hybrid that defeats David's creation. I think that's kind of cool. And, and Cole, uh, Orton, a robot, helps her do it. <laughs> right, I think right. that's like, the biggest way to stick it to David Eight. I, I do think that there's something to be said for the meaning having been deepened as a result of the prequels. But I, I also think that the quality of the script precludes it from exploring those ideas in any kind of interesting, meaningful way. Because in theory... Ripley is totally performing an Ubermensch functionality in this, right? Because she's she's superior to the humans. She bridges the divide between these two things, and and she and she could potentially become basically this salvationary figure. But it, mm. the script the script doesn't go into that at all because I don't know because it, it doesn't it doesn't carry its own momentum. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it's like like and this is something that we've, we've complained about, and I don't want to get into it now because this is a script conversation. But I feel like. Yep there are such interesting things that could have been done with Ripley's character in this film that could have potentially even justified bringing her back. And, and I'm the one who always complains about the fact that they brought her back for this. I think that they could have potentially pulled it off had the movie become ultimately about her. But but in my mind, at the end of the day, she's subsumed by just sort of this ensemble and is just sort of like set dressing who is just sort of there doing vaguely interesting things in the background and having, you know, blood that steams when it hits things. That, that being said, we're, we're getting <laughs> sidetracked, but that's an amazing, yeah. amazing string of things that you put out there. And, and, I, and I, I really hope that it gets listener engagement because I think that was awesome, Clara. And I'm so glad that now when I watch it again, um, I'll, I'll be thinking more of those, of those things. And, I, and lastly, I, I do want to say that um, although, although I do think that a lot of those thematic tie-ins to things like the Pantheon or things like, um, you know, not, uh, like, uh, you know, Nietzschean philosophy, like things like that, I think 
are accidental, but that doesn't mean that they're not valid, because as we know, art is not informed only by literal things, by, by artists sitting down and saying like, oh, I want to do an allusion to this or to that or to, you know, artists don't typically do that. Um, you know, when I'm writing music, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to do a reference to this idea and that idea. You know, it's 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 coming out of my subconscious, which is informed by all these decisions and these influences. And when when a movie's being made, those things are happening too. And sometimes it's literalized. Sometimes you know they want to specifically hearken to something, and sometimes they don't. Oh. Sometimes it just the production design ends up having hexagonal repeating pieces in it that hearken to the to the pantheon, which is also hearkened to in the shape of the cell. But it happens because it's part of the human experience. And, and I, so in me saying that it might not have been intentional, I'm not taking away from the fact that it's totally valid to, to talk about and to observe. Um, before we move on to the final section of this, I, I just want to just touch quickly on the Betty because I think the Betty is a super cool piece of um, production design. And, uh, and we haven't heard from Jamie in a while. Do you want to talk about the Betty a little bit? Well, again, I, I really enjoyed the designs. I think, uh, you know, they were, as we as aforementioned, they were uh, miniatures or bigatures. Um, very beautiful. I loved the way the Betty moved. Uh, it was uh, a, a hue of yellow and had those arms. It was just very interesting and unique and very Genet designs um, for this film. Again, uh, the aesthetics of the film, you can't beat them. Um, again, I, 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 you know, we were talking about the Riga and as to kind of give a fuller opinion on the Auriga as much as I like the design of the exterior and some of the interiors, the Auriga felt so huge. Nothing felt connected. It didn't feel like a, it didn't feel like the Nostromo. And I don't, when I say that, I'm not saying I wanted to see the Nostromo. It didn't feel like I was on a ship. It felt like set pieces. Um, nothing felt connected. Like they were going from one area to the other. And in a lot of films, certainly the original um, alien, all of those uh, access points were constructed. They had to bring the the lighting, the camera, all of that. In fact, a lot of the lighting was incidental in the set uh, when they were shooting. Whereas with the Auriga, um, again, it just really lacked a sense of cohesion. And then you had scenes where you saw all the aliens in in um, containment, and there was a scene where you saw the people, and they were strapped above eggs. Very visually arresting, very great looking set pieces but it just was lost in the kind of cavernous whatever that the Auriga was so exterior was interesting interior was beautiful but I just felt like it didn't nothing connected it just it didn't really hold any weight for me I didn't feel like I was a part of the ship and I knew my way around it if that makes sense well and part of me feels like that could be purely a virtue of what Clara was talking about earlier about how on, on the first film even though they had a huge studio they repeated sets constantly because they just shot from different angles and from different lights. And um, and on this one, they had such a huge budget and they had so much space and they had so many gigantic sets with 200 people building them that um, they didn't have to have that same economy of resources. And it might have actually ended up doing a disservice because it wasn't you know as visually cohesive or as as tied together. Um, I think that's I think that could totally be part of the issue because I I totally agree with you on that. Well, and I think. In terms of, you know, towards the middle to end of Resurrection, you see all these, you know, the, the ensemble, the crew, heading from point A to point B. Um, 
And so they have to go somewhere and they have to go underwater. And none of that made sense to me. I'm like, okay, so they have to get somewhere and they have to go through this thing underwater. I'm like, wait a minute. The ship is that huge that this is the only way in? No, that doesn't make any logical sense. If it's as big as it is, there's there's lifts, there's transports. Um, there's all sorts of, you can go to docking bays and go to other levels. Um, so some of that, you know, in terms of the suspension of disbelief, um, you know, you, you can do that, but things need to be able to make sense within the world that you're being presented with. And I think the interior of the Auriga made no sense, um, even though, yes, they had a larger budget. And they, for me, at least, aesthetically, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know, um, like in Aliens, uh, there's a similar where they have to kind of go someplace, but then the power's cut and they're trapped and everything made sense. Everything that made sense for us, for me, every step of the way. Why they're doing what they're doing, why they're why they're going where they're going. It made sense aesthetically, it made sense verbally, it made sense emotionally. They were kind of being trapped. Whereas in Alien Resurrection, it was like, okay, they say so, but it just, I have no sense of the area. So it just, it seemed like, oh, hey, let's film this underwater. Okay, great, you know. Right, right, um, like, like let's do it. Even though piece. it was beautiful. Right. Beautiful. But but, like but that's that's like I think a huge point is well sorry what were you gonna say? No, I I was just gonna say that you know those scenes all of them are absolutely beautiful. In fact, one of my favorite scenes or moments in Resurrection is when they're all in the water and it looks like there's waterfalls kind of coming down, um, like they're in this hallway or whatever. And Ripley's they kind of recreate that same shot that Ripley's known for, where she's in the foreground and everyone else is behind her. Um, you see that same shot in Alien Three. You see that you see that same shot in Alien, res, uh, in Aliens. You see that same shot in Alien in Alien, um, and it's just rich and it's blue and it's beautiful. Um, but again, I they're explaining why they have to do what they do, but the ship doesn't even make any kind of logical sense in terms of how it's mapped out. So you're just kind of along for the ride. And for me, one of the reasons why Aliens is so great is because everything makes sense. It's like we're on this journey with them and we know that they're up against something and we know that the power is cut and we know that there's only a few ways out and all of these things happening and things make logical sense. Whereas with Resurrection, it's all very beautiful, but it doesn't make any logical sense. Well, and what I was going to say is that, again, just like the Ubermensch thing we were talking about, if, if it had been done intentionally like that, it could have been really effective. It could have been powerful to have a disorientating, a dis, oh my God, disorientating, a disorienting spaceship, right? It could have been... Um, totally. Like, it, it could have been done in a really harrowing way, where it was like, like, why does this corridor not go where we thought it went? Like, like how are we going to get around? Like, it could have been done in a pragmatic and interesting way with intent, and had it been pulled off, it could have been actually really interesting. But again, it's like it, it, it happened accidentally. Like it was confusing because it wasn't cohesively made or there wasn't some sort of a fully realized spatial um, situation between them. But it's it's funny, I totally agree with you that like for such a visual director, you would think that he would say, oh, this, this corridor doesn't really make sense in light of where they just came from. I don't know where it's going to. Um, but I want to move on because we're, we're running a little bit... Uh, long on this. I, I want to make sure we talk briefly about the Betty. There's a great story in the Making of Resurrection book that I've brought up a thousand times, that which I'll just tell you about quickly. I know you guys know it, but for the listeners. Um, they The design of the Betty was inspired chiefly by a jackhammer that was sitting in Nigel Phelps's backyard. There was, he was having some yard work done, 
and there was this um, a jackhammer sitting out. And, and Phelps in this book uh, says, quote, it just looked fantastic because it was very hard with a functional quality about it, but it was very techy. The lines were very good. The finish was brilliant. I wanted to apply that essence to everything on the show. And there were a couple of things that I found and felt were just right, end quote. Um, so he was inspired by a jackhammer. He was inspired by a forklift. He was inspired by a lot of industrial stuff. So this brings me to one more thing I want to say about the production design. Um, and then I want to go to Mike because I haven't, um, I've been talking a lot. But I think that uh, the intentions are really good. And again, the talent is really good. Nigel Phelps is a great production designer. And the, what, the, the Betty had so much promise and is not a bad set. But we never got to enjoy it. We never get to really live in it. We never get to breathe in it. It's just basically a transitionary piece between the Auriga and not the Auriga. And, uh, and, and I feel like I don't know it at all. I feel like I just see glimpses of, of things in it. And, and, and those glimpses are so brief that I can't even really differentiate in my mind's eye right now where the Auriga ends and the Betty begins. Like, I know, I know the first time you see the crew, obviously, they're in the Betty. But it sort of melts together aesthetically, which is weird because they're very different spaces. And you can see that if you freeze the frame or if you look in the art book and you can see the two side by side, and you're like, oh, a lot of thought went into this. But for some reason in execution, it ended up being so kind of strangely muddled to me. But Mike, what are your thoughts on the Betty? Yeah, I I was going to say something similar, and it's in the, it's in the book as well uh, near that same area, was that they tried to design the Betty to be different and yet when you're watching the movie you kind of forget which is which and and to go back with James with Jamie was saying it's like they were just going from like okay now we're at this set piece uh, okay that's over now we're going to this set piece and this one uh, and the ships kind of start to not matter so much um, and they even tried to make the Betty something akin to uh, Ripley's character where it was like uh, like it had insect sectional uh, properties going on, but also a lot of mechanical and um, like gear-like design. Um, but all that is just talk, you know. When you see it in the movie, it doesn't really feel like that. You're just like, okay, well, I guess we're on the ship, and like you said, you can't enjoy it because it, it isn't given the attention a character that they claim it is deserves. Uh, whereas something like the Sulaco, you really get the feeling of, of what the ship feels like, and um, it's completely different from Hadley's Hope or the Nostromo being different from any other ship in the in the universe. Right. So, even even like in, in Aliens, they're they're they traverse a ton of different sets. There's a lot of different things spatially going on. There are huge set pieces. There's a lot of shit. You don't spend that much time in, in any of them. Like the Sulaco you're only in for a couple of minutes of screen time, you know. And yet they feel completely real. Like I can smell them. You know, I, I don't I don't think for a second that there's anything unclear. when I think about the Betty I mean, I, I don't, I don't even fucking know what it looks like. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, I know there's two levels and kind of a docking bay, and and then there's just kind of junk. You know, you know what I mean. But the Nostromo to me, and the Sulaco, uh, and Fury One Six One is a great example of this too. They're they're living, breathing things that um, exist as as completely realized characters. It's funny you bring up that insectoid quote, Mike, because the first time I read that in the book, I, I literally laughed. I was like, this, that is such PR speak. <laughs> That like this right. book came out right at the time of release, and they're like, you know, building it up so much. I'm like, that 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 is definitely not what the case is with the Betty. Anyway, yeah, like, what what are we what are we going to bring up about the Betty? Uh, uh, oh, it's like Ripley. Uh, in yeah, right. stuff. You know, like, oh, okay, whatever. Yeah, but I think no that, sense. but I think really, what's at the heart of this though is 
why this feels the way it does. Like, for instance, you're naming the Nostromo, the Sulaco. I would agree. Like, these, those, the Sulaco, we didn't spend any time in. But I hear that name and I see that ship and it feels like home. It's the same way I feel about the Nostromo. Um, I don't feel like the, you know, Fury 161 is like home, but it feels familiar. It feels like it makes sense. The difference here is that with Resurrection, uh, a lot of concentration went on the visuals. I mean, look at the script. It's all about the visuals. It's not, whereas with James Cameron, with Fincher, it's about story. It's about continuity. It's about connection. And those things are, are incidental. And because they're great visualists, they can visualize it, but they know that that's not the point. Whereas with Resurrection, that's all Jean-Pierre Jeunet had was the visuals. So it's a very visual film, and that's about it. That's why it doesn't feel cont uh, continuous or it doesn't feel like there's a lot of continuity. Nothing feels familiar. Nothing, even though some things might look familiar, it doesn't feel familiar. And that's why the Betty, I mean, I couldn't tell you anything about the Betty either. And like, for instance, there's that one scene when the Betty is docking with the Eregan. It's this huge scene and all this grand music. And then finally it docks. Like, why couldn't they have spent like, almost like they were showing off how visually amazing these things were. Um, and really, Aliens, the visual of the Alien series, at least in my opinion, um, the, visual, the, the, visual, the visual stylings of the Alien series were always incidental. The visuals always came after, what a great story, what great characters, wow, that was also really beautiful. Um, like, when we think of aliens, certainly we think, oh, yeah, the space jockey and all of these things. But uh, we really, we think about characters with, when we think about resurrection, all we think about are, are visuals, because that's really all they're offering. Um, so it's really just a testament to how these films were made. Um, and then you had a film made by a, a Frenchman who couldn't speak English, who had a, who had a uh, translator on set, who had a, a storyboard for a Bible, um, to kind of help him along, who watched big, huge American films to see what kind of setups that he could do. I mean, it's all kind of there. Um, so that's kind of kind of circle back around on, on, on the Betty slash Ariga. I mean, that's why we feel the way we do. That's why we can't name anything, because that's this. There's nothing else there. There was no these 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 are these are these aren't characters in the film. They're set pieces. It's funny, if, if you asked me to find the third floor bathroom on the Sulaco, I feel like I, I could do it in my imagination. I would, like know, I would know where it probably would be, and I could probably find, I, I was like, I, could, I can picture the corridor, I can picture the stairs, like it's, you know what I mean? I, I just, it, you see the Sulaco for a matter of seconds of screen time internally, and it, it's a fully realized vision. It, it, it is a thing that exists, you know what I mean? It's a thing that is just correct in its space and in its place in the universe and you know it's a real thing even though it's not you don't get that with resurrection anyway moving on before we close out i i think we're probably going to have to do a separate episode on the uh, effects because i think there's a, a lot to unpack there so we can kind of bookmark that for now but in the meantime i want to make sure we talk about the cinematography because i think we can all agree that it's super fascinating and uh, darius kanji who you know was uh, nominated for an Academy Award on the Vita and did Seven, which is honestly one of my favorite films of that whole decade. Um, he's a, a brilliant cinematographer, and he did a lot of very interesting processes for this, like ENR. And I would like to invite Clara to uh, 
talk a little bit about that because it's something that we've discussed in the past and I think you have some cool insights into it. So uh, I'll, I'll start with a basic explanation of what ENR is. It's adding silver to um, the actual film itself and what it does is it enables the, uh, the look of the film to give this sort of like metallic feel. It also darkens um, the, the shadows and, and the, the darker colours and it also lightens the brighter colours. So things become um, kind, of, kind of give that little glow. So when you look at the lights in, for example, Ripley's cell, they kind of give a glow around the lighting. Um, everyone kind of looks like they're sweating. <laughs> they have that really uh, wet sort of look, and, and, and it really highlights the xenomorphs as well being very um, moist. That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, well, very drooly, kind of like yeah, this just KY jelly coming out of their pores. It's it's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think it's it's really interesting that sort of like we've had attempts at making um, a film that's quite uh, well lit into making it look darker, which I, I feel like what the ENR process has done um, because in in every single scene, even though we've got like a lot of dark colours and browns, you can tell that the before the ENR process it, it was quite bright. You still have a um, sort of like lining on um, all the edges of all of the surfaces and stuff like that. The, the textures are still quite noticeable. Whereas if you, you've got a, a movie that is short, shot in complete darkness and is only relying on singular light sources, it, it's, it gives sort of like a different sort of feel. So everything kind of feels kind of uh, warm. The color palettes, yeah, quite warm, despite it being um, an ENR process. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Well, I, I just wanted to bring up just a, a subsidiary point to that, which is that in addition to the ENR, which darkens the shit out of everything, uh, Kanji also was blowing so much smoke on set that uh, I mean, not not I don't think he was actually smoking, but but he was blowing so much of this sort of fog into the set that um, they had to take breathing breaks every ten minutes because um, it would sometimes <laughs> become so viscous and built up that it would be hard to breathe, and and then it's and then it's lit like extraordinarily brightly. But with all this, um, you know, well, it's not all practical lighting, but but for the most part, a lot of the light sources are sort of are implied to be practical. You know, you, you don't get very much, very many of those sort of, you know, key lights out of the frame blowing down in people's faces. It, it feels pretty practical. But the effect of that is, is I, th- I think, a, a really kind of murky, strange looking movie that um, if it and this is my personal opinion, but if it had been framed better, I don't want to say I, I, I don't know how to frame a film as well as Darius Kanji does. I'm not saying that I do. But I do think that had they taken more time with shots and, and been a little further out and allowed the scenes to breathe a little more, maybe we could have gotten more of that aesthetic ravishment out of them. Whereas I feel like the way that it ended up coming across looks a little too much like sort of a circa 2006 NBC television pilot to me. Really? You think that? Yeah, I do. I think I think there are moments. I think there are moments where that is totally not the case. I think there are some really, really beautiful moments. But I do think that um, something that 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 Janae does a lot is is he um, uses. Uh, oh fuck, I can't remember. Anamorph. No, what is that? I can't remember what the term is. But but he uses lenses that distort the image around the the border a lot, and he gets very close in on people, like Terry Gilliam does, and he does this sort of like distorted effect on people's faces. 
And I just feel like it's kind of a genuinely aesthetically ugly thing in the context of other ugly things going on, like poorly lit <laughs> scenes that that are using these beautiful... I mean, ENR as an idea... I, so, I mean, it's using, for one thing, film, which I love. I love the fact that it was obviously pre-digital. I love the fact that they were doing these things now, which we take for granted. You know, you look at any fucking DC Universe movie, and they're all doing this digital ENR treatment to everything where the contrast is super high, right? And it looks very dark and very blue. Um, I love the fact that, that it's a movie where they were doing that organically with actual elements on film. But I, it doesn't, it, for some reason to me, it doesn't work in probably 75% of the shots. I'd say 25% of the shots are um, absolutely beautiful. Oh, <laughs> anamorphic, there you go. Um, I, but I think that the, that the other shots to me really fall kind of flat. Well, I think that there is, you know, the ENR process, what it does happen is it brings out the darks, the rich tones, but it also um, mutes and desaturates the light tones. So it sometimes it has that, like, overly soft soap, soap opera at, you know, 12 in the afternoon on a Monday, on a Tuesday morning look, because it's so soft and it, and it, and it softens and desaturates you know the skin tones so it's it's uh i don't know i mean i feel i with resurrection i feel like most of the time we're i don't know i i i love the look of it um now again i'll i'll pivot back to i think the character the the main character in resurrection is the style is the look is the aesthetic um but yeah i mean i think most of what we're even what we're talking about tonight um Really, we're kind of pivoting around all of that, all of the, the aesthetics um, of resurrection, and really, that's kind of what's front and center more than any character. Um, but, but yeah, I can understand what you're saying, though. But he, here's the thing: to me, is that you, you're doing all these things, and not you, Darius Kanji, is doing all these things to well, maybe you are too. I don't know to darken the image as much as possible, right? To make it as deeply black and hypersaturated and opaque as as you can get away with, but to make it show on a projection movie screen you have to have some amount of light right and um and so so instead of uh making it grainy and upping the brightness over and over again they have to have these like super bright light sources on the set so you see for example in the basketball court you know it looks like fucking there's like a lighthouse in the middle of it because the lights are so bright but everything else is so dark and there's such a differentiation between the bright and the dark that it, it to me it, it ruins the beauty of the scene Whereas in Alien, I think that the cinematography in Alien, the first film, is probably my favorite in, in any movie ever, except maybe for 2001. I think those are the, my two favorite cinematographic achievements. And I think part of what's so beautiful about Alien is that um, it the sense of light and dark is so perfectly geometrically balanced throughout the, the whole thing that your eye doesn't get bored because it's constantly being shown complex and beautifully arranged input. You know, like there are moments in, like, for example, when the, you know, when the Lotus pods open in the beginning of, of Alien, when you see the crew waking up from hypersleep, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a ravishingly bright moment. And there are moments like that throughout, you know, the Narcissus is like that. Sometimes you, you get the, the mother room, you get, you get the control chamber, you get these moments of really true, balanced, warm, bright things. So that when you are plunged into darkness, it's, it's haunting and it's new and it's fascinating to me. There's a commercial aspect to Janae's work, but especially to Resurrection, 
that I think does sort of a disservice to the aesthetic beauty of it because it becomes very one note. When you see a movie where every scene is color graded to be basically blue and high contrast, you start to get really bored of it. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a reason why movie posters have been overusing blue and orange lately. It's because you know they play off of each other, right? And you don't get that orange. You don't get that. You don't get that antagonistic aspect to the blue and, and the color palette of the movie. The closest you get to it. Um, because, because again, even on the ship, all of the sets are basically green and blue on the Auriga, but the aliens are brown, which I think is really interesting, and they're they're basically the only brown things you see, and I think that is sort of powerful. But again, it's I don't I don't think there's anything beautiful about it, and and to me, an alien movie has to have some sort of a deep sense of, of beauty to it, um, in order. To well, and I, I and I think that really the, I mean. I'm surprising that I'm saying this. I think way too much attention was uh, way too much attention was given to the the aesthetics of the film. Way too much. They spent way too long on that. Like that's not what these films are about. Again, these are it's incidental. Um, these films are about storytelling, and uh, you know you had someone in there who didn't really understand the story, but they understand they understood the visuals. And he so was somebody who got. was hired literally because he was a visualist because 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 they wanted to have a, a distinct visual style to the movie and and like we've talked about on three episodes now he was kind of like why are you asking me to do this I, I'll give it a shot but it, you're right Jamie it totally it comes through in the final product it's sort of it's sort of this um it's sort of like a weird extended Pepsi commercial or something <laughs> me. I, I I think the the hive scene at, at least where the alien queen is about to give birth. I think the color choice in that is quite interesting because you look at the color choices for um, the mother room in in Alien. Like you know how they the the director and the writers and stuff that they sat down and watched every single Alien movie and they made notes and they tried to replicate all of these really great scenes. So even that scene with just going off subject a, a bit, Elgin walking down the corridor following those weapons again. There's that blast of steam just like in aliens so that the, the doing all of these sorts of callbacks and and there are all sorts of things that i feel that in the movie they worked but it's kind of all jumbled up it's like kind of like a, 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 a aesthetically pleasing mess so with the hive scene and the alien queen kind of looking in the same sort of like color palette and tone of the mother room when dallas is communicating to the ai and you've got ripley there I guess communicating to the newborn and the queen. I think that's an interesting sort of like the the, the choice, whether intentional or not. I, I think that's like a, I don't know. It's just a very inter- interesting sort of interaction. That sort of like parallelism with the color tone there. You know. Yeah, and, and there's a what, shift to warmer colors, color. Totally. Yeah, because because it's it's you know mother being the womb and then the alien queen having a womb. It's just all sorts of like. I don't know. There seems to be some sort of connection there that that was either intentional or not. But I th- I thought it was quite beautiful. I really like this. It's it's cause it's kind of weird. It's got this like sort of romantic lighting. Like I think if you took away the alien queen and you put down the dining table and had everyone sitting there, <laughs> it would be sort of like a romantic sort of atmosphere. It'd be very romantic. <laughs> especially <laughs> especially with um, Dr. Getterman there um, <laughs> <and> the newborn <laughs> having a romantic meal um, but there's this sort of like it's kind of a kind of uh, I, I guess oh, it's, it's really hard to say it's kind of like a it's like a twisted sort of sarcasm 
in, in sort of like you've got mm. this all this romantic lighting and, and really like beautiful goldish sort of mood lighting when you've got the birth of the alien, but then stark contrast to Ripley's um, uh, cesarean scene where she's having the alien extracted. It's very like bright and very, um, very tonally green. And you've got like all of the, the characters, like you said, with their warped faces kind of looking uglier than the alien <laughs> itself when it's coming out. It's just sort of very weird, but it, it kind of works for me. It, it makes out the humans to be the aliens instead in this movie, instead of the aliens being aliens. Um, and, and I think the, the color cinematography going between the browns and the dark colors, and then you've got the, the, the bright, bright greens and the light colors. It's just very rem- reminiscent of um, earth, but then you're, you're on a space station. So yeah, it's, it's just, um, I really like the sort of uh, colors that they've chosen to go with. It, is, it feels strange. It feels like a mishmash, definitely. Um, but I think that's the the exact tone of the movie that they're trying to go for. Like this is sort of like the the sort of fever dream that they're trying to evoke. Well, and then when they, when they finally do get to Earth in the special edition, of course, it's like yellow, <laughs> which is super weird. But here, the the difference to me between the cinematography in Alien and the cinematography in Alien Resurrection, I think, is probably no more perfectly summed up than the difference between the mother control room and that sort of pseudo hive on Re- on the Ariga. You're totally right that they're both big tonal shifts um, from, from a color standpoint, from a lighting standpoint, within the context of the films in which they're operating. But the what's so beautiful about the mother room, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here because I know you guys agree on, on this, is the the genuine refulgence of the light, Right like we're in this claustrophobic space where everything is very sterile and very kind of semi-lit. And then you're just in basically this globe of, of brilliant, warm womb-like lighting, you know, and it's, it's, and it's so, it's like genuinely bright and genuinely dark. And the, in the scene in the hive in resurrection, there's none of that. There's no interesting light going on. It's, 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 you're right. It's sort of golden marooned, I guess, uh, in terms of color palette. But it's just, it's like the, the, I feel like the differentiation in color between light and dark is, is so narrow, like the contrast is so low. And I think part of it's because there's the ENR shit going on and there's smoke on the set and it's, and basically everything's being muted by that. And then there's also no big bright light source. And so the whole thing kind of comes across like it's a steamy, you know, like romantic scene when, when it's, I don't think thematically played out in a way that would suggest that it was intentional. But that being said, that's, this is all opinion. Um, you know, we don't have to get into it. But I, I just I feel like that's a, a moment of juxtaposition that really really doesn't work for me. Um, Mike, what, what are your thoughts before we close on the cinematography? Yeah, um, I was just going to add uh, Kanji. Uh, one of his first inspirations was um, the work of Francis Bacon, which is not Francis Bacon that everybody knows from history, but he's an artist from I believe the 1940s. Yeah, mid 20th century. Irish. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he was Irish born or something like that. And he, um, his paintings have this uh, light source that you don't really know where it's coming from. Um, and if you, if you take a look, in fact, his uh, second version of studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion, uh, the, the thing in that, the, whatever is on there, looks like uh, the turkey burster that they designed for Alien. Yeah, he, um, he he puts those in a lot of. I mean, the thing with the mouth and and like the kind of like the wobbly legs. Yeah, and it just it kind of it's a, it's a featherless. Almost. Yeah, yeah, almost it looks like it would be featherless. Yeah. He paints that on all sorts of shit. Yeah, he did some and it, it, it looks just like the what what 
uh, Geiger designed early on. Um, but uh, let's see, oh, what was I saying? Oh, so um, I, I agree with everything that's being said. I think the lighting, all these things are design choices, obviously, that we've been talking about. And I, I like the fact that it, it feels more of a interpretive movie. Like it, things aren't spelled out and maybe they weren't meant to be spelled out, but kind of how Clara has been bringing up um, with her thoughtful analysis that resurrection has these aspects of the design and um, the look that you, even if they weren't meant to be that way, you find meaning in them. Um, and I, I think it doesn't work uh, just because of the tone. If And I think I've said this before in the previous episode that I was on, if, if the tone was shifted dramatically, if it was, it was not this dark comedy or black comedy, however you want to put it, it all this all these great ideas of design and art and creation would come together so much more cohesively and it would be a far more interesting movie than what it is. Um, so I think that's that's all I need to say. I think I think that's a good place to end it. Um, before we do, does anybody have any final thoughts on the production that they want to get to? Just when you said um, it seems like it's all one note, that, that line from Alien uh, Covenant came into my mind, when one note is off, it ruins the entire symphony. You know that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 yeah, yeah. It it you're kind of right. Um, <laughs> I I love Resurrection. It's a fun watch for me. It's definitely a lot happier and and a fun ride in comparison to Alien Three. Um, and I feel that the the characters, at least for me, um, seem much more memorable. But maybe it's because it's my first cinematic viewing of an Alien movie. Um, whereas uh, I don't really count my, my first cinematic viewing, even though I'm, I was four. I didn't really remember it that much. Um, but this one, this was the major one for me, and, and the characters are something that I really bonded with when it came out. Um, I, I love everything about this movie, and I, I could <laughs> go on about every single tiny um, bit of information, but obviously that's that's going to take way too long. But, you know, I I, I like the way that the cinematography is done. I really like the characters, even though Hillard is, is pretty forgettable. Um, I like the clever ideas with the story where, you know, um, they've got this, for example, that in intimate moment with um, Elgin and, and Hillard with that weird foot fetish thing. But then <laughs> later when she gets snatched by the xenomorph in the water, she gets dragged under by her foot. So something that has you know, taken center stage as being a very intimate sort of moment and very sexual, then gets kind of changed when the, the xenomorph grabs her. So so we've got all of these sorts of, like, things playing off each other, and it, it all just works for me really well. You know, even, um, for example, uh, Winona Ryder overcoming her, her fear of um, drowning and doing that underwater scene, just, you know, the, the Studio Addy crew having to be underwater with, um, oxygen tanks, the sorts of choices that they made with the basketball scene, it, it being a, a, a proper shot and not something just CGI. Uh, I like I like all of those things that they decided to do. Even with Jonna throwing that knife up into the air, acting like a monkey, you know, paralleling off um, 2001: A Space Odyssey and the the monkey throwing the bone up into the air. You know, like there's not much of a difference making it from the ground up into the sky. 
the human race is still the same as unchanged and, and Ripley 8 can see that and I, re- I really like that. Sorry, I could go on forever about resurrection, but <laughs> <laughs> well, well, hopefully you'll be on another one of our resurrection episodes soon. You can continue to, to wax poetic about it because we definitely need, need that perspective. Because a lot of us are in this boat where we have this very close, intimate relationship with it because it was our first theatrical alien experience. Not all of us, but a lot of us. And there, I, I will always have love in my heart for the movie, even though I, I like it less the older I get, <laughs> the more I talk about it. But you know what? We still got more stuff to cover, and I think we're going to get to yeah. it next time. So. And I think it's it's worth noting that Alien Resurrection for Fox was a huge, huge deal. Uh, bringing this franchise back, they thought, really, you know, it was just Alien 3 was the first um, of, of, you know, of the trilogy. It was the first letdown. So they thought, let's go back. Let's revive this this series. It's an amazing series. There's nothing else like it. And so they were so excited about it. I mean, they... Um, Time Magazine, I've mentioned this before on some episode, Time Magazine did a whole piece on it, um, on how Fox was really banking on the revival of this series, and when they started releasing photos, I mean, everybody was like, oh my god, this looks so amazing, like, it looked a little bit like Alien, it felt really different, no one really knew what was in store, this was a big gamble for them, and it was a catastrophic failure for them, it made, it opened on, um, uh, Thanksgiving weekend um, in 1997 and you know so it opened on a Thursday I believe and so it had Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday four days and over four days it made $29 million again colossal failure um, and I, it was also a testament that there was a lot of people working on this film that had no idea what they were doing and the only person who was sounding the alarm at the time was um uh, Walter Hill um, saying you're going to ruin this franchise and they did um, at least and then it, of course it wasn't until Prometheus that things kind of started to get a little bit back on track or it started to be a little bit more serious so uh, you know I think that's just great context to to have as we continue on this discussion totally alright guys thank you so much for doing this thank, thank you for having us on <laughs> appreciate it thank you guys alright bye see ya For more on this and our other projects, please visit www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, find us on our closed Facebook group, Building Better Worlds. To support the show, please consider visiting www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. We've got some great perks available. And as always, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. We can't tell you how much your support means to us, but we can hopefully show you by continuing to provide better, more ambitious, and more dynamic content for years to come.